So we're going to pause our journey through Ephesians. We're going to take the next few Sundays to center ourselves around Jesus and the Christmas story. So for the rest of the year, it's uh, Christmas according to John, and then next week Isaiah, and then the week after that Mary, and a few others. And we got a lot to look forward to. And for today, um, we're going to see an unfamiliar side of the Christmas story. If you've grown up with the Christmas story, there's there's probably the different renditions that you've you've heard again and again. I think for the mo- for mo- the most part, this is going to be an unfamiliar side of the story for for a lot of us because it's the the invisible side, the spiritual side, the heavenly side of what was taking place in the heavens on the night when Jesus was born. And so before we hear from the revelation of Jesus, um, Eugene Peterson gives us a lot of help in his uh, book, his commentary called Reverse Thunder. Um, If you've grown up in church, uh, sermons around revelation or things you've watched on YouTube, it can get a little weird. It can get a little crazy. So that might make some people nervous. Um, I think Eugene Peterson um, gives us some great context uh, to, to, to go from here. So this is what Peterson writes. He says, I don't read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before, in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete. It's revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject. But, then this is key, there's a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that old truth is devoted to platitude by endless usage, and he sets it in motion before us in an animated, impassioned dance of ideas. Man, some people just have a gift with words. Eugene Peterson, he's one of those. So the new way to speak the gospel It's through imagery, and sometimes in this book, it's wild imagery. Sometimes it's frightening imagery. Uh, Imagery that ironically needs to be heard in order to be seen, which is why we're told, read this book out loud, Um, which is also why anytime somebody tries to put this book into movie form or illustrate it, it just gets really weird. Uh, It's supposed to stay in your imagination. And so, so that the, the images can go to work on our imagination, um, I'm not going to put the text on screen. You, you could have it open um, in front of you, but um, we're going to hear the Christmas story and, and let the images be in our imagination as we hear it. So here's the Christmas story according to John, the disciple of Jesus. Behold, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, and she was with child. And another sign, a great red dragon And he stood before the woman who was about to give birth, that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations. So stay right there in Revelation 12. We'll keep coming back to this. There's more here. Now, I'm I'm sure it's not obvious uh, why this is a Christmas text. Um, And all that's going to become clear very soon, hopefully, if I do my job right. But first of all, we hear John say, behold, and it's not how you and I typically talk today. Um, try it out this week. You might have some fun. Um, be like, behold, I have made dinner for us today. Or, you know, just have some, have some fun with it. I think you'll get people's attention and they'll be all, you're weird. Uh, but behold, it means look or it means wake up. Like wake up and realize what's happening all around you. 
And in the case of Revelation 12, it's wake up and realize what was happening on the night that the Savior, Jesus, was born into the world. So in chapters 12 to 14, we, we, we get an amazing thing to behold. There's this woman, there's this child, there's a dragon, there's a lamb. Everything that Jesus is revealing here has to do with a war. But not just any war, it's, it's the war. Uh, it's the war behind all other wars, the, the, the cosmic heavenly war. This, this passage is answering a question that is generated by the claims of the gospel. The gospel declares that in Jesus Christ, the living Lord has won a decisive victory over sin and death and the devil. But then this brings up a problem for us. It brings up questions for us. Questions like, if, if this gospel, if this good news is really true news, then why are things still so bad? Like, what, 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 what was that with the resurrection and Jesus' ministry and then him returning to heaven? Like, if, if we really have good news, why are things still so bad? If, if the gospel declares that evil's been defeated, then why is evil still running amok in the world, causing so much havoc, so much damage? Have you, ever, have you ever asked some form of that question? Like, okay, if, if God is good or if the gospel's real, then why, all, why, why is all this happening? Have you ever, yeah, I've seen some nodding heads. Me too, me too. The answer is that you and I, we're still in the middle of the war. The war is not over. The, the decisive victory in the war has been accomplished, but the full implications of the victory still need to be carried out in the world and in our lives. Uh, World War II, uh, any World War II buffs in here? Like if, if there's anything on TV or a movie, you're like, I'm in. I, don't, I haven't even seen it yet, but I'm adding it to my queue. Definitely going to watch it, read about it, whatever. Yeah. So World War II helps us make sense of where we are in the, in the cosmic war. Um, when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, that was a tremendous victory for the Allied forces. But if you know... Uh, Hitler and his armies, they dug in and they put up a fight. Just because there was a tremendous victory at D-Day didn't mean the war was over. There was so many more battles, so many more years of conflict, um, and so many more battles that had to be carried out until V-Day or V-E-Day, Victory Day or Victory in Europe Day. And uh, many, many more lives were lost. The, many, a lot more damage was still done. And in the Christian story, the, the incarnation of Jesus, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, all of that is part of the Christian D-Day. Um, but, but on the other side of the resurrection, there's still a long way that we have to go. There's a whole cleanup operation here. There's so much, so much more of Jesus' victory and the implications of that that has to be carried out in the world and in our lives. And so you could say that Christ followers, in a sense, we live between D-Day and V-Day. We're, we're still in the middle. And we can't forget that this, this war is still going on. And there's still a lot of ground that has to be taken in this war. And there's still going to be damage done. There's still going to be a, a lot of, of, of evil wrecking havoc in the world. Revelation 12 tells us that this war started a long time ago. And then heaven experiences a victory, a decisive victory. But here's the surprise in the story. The decisive victory for heaven takes place on earth. Heaven's long and cosmic war is, is, is won. The victory is achieved by a particular event 
that happens on the earth. And the event is the birth of a child. Who is this child? He's Jesus the Messiah. How do we know that? Because of what we hear about in Revelation 12, verse 5. Hopefully you're still there in your Bible. Verse 5, where it says, He will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, this is, a, this is a biblical hyperlink. So we click on the hyperlink, and then it takes us to Psalm 2, which is a, it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that anticipates the Messiah, God's, God's deliverer. And so this child, we're supposed to understand with this hyperlink, with this echo in the background, we're supposed to understand this child is the promised Messiah. And we hear this child is going to rule with a rod of iron. So uh, the word rod, think of a shepherd, like in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But then it's a rod of iron, which means that our shepherd king, he's very strong, very strong. Jesus the Messiah, our shepherd king, is a very strong shepherd. But then we hear that the dragon tries to kill the child. So two questions. When does this happen and, and why? First question, first answer, when? When does the dragon try to kill the child? As soon as the child is born. And suddenly, we understand more of what we read about in Matthew's version of the Christmas story, where Herod the Great, he was, he was the king at the time, having heard about the birth of the king of the Jews, he orders that all the boys in Bethlehem who were two years and younger would be murdered. And it's awful, and it's dark, and it's a really evil part of the Christmas story. And Revelation 12 is like the cosmic, invisible backstory of what was happening that day in the human realm. What this means is that what we're reading about, what we're hearing about in Revelation 12 has already taken place. What, what John sees in Revelation 12 happened on Christmas Eve. Revelation 12 is a Christmas text. And now you can understand why there's this entire angel army who announces the birth of Jesus to shepherds, where there's, they're saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. This, this angel army that shows up, they're celebrating the fact that they just snuck Yahweh's secret weapon in behind enemy lines. They were, victor they were victorious in, in their mission, which means that they're, they're celebrating because they know the tide of this cosmic war has turned for the better, and we can have peace with God. So they're celebrating. They're, they're, they're chest bumping. They're high-fiving each other. They're, they're celebrating, and they're getting the shepherds in on this to say, guys, this is amazing, and we're letting you know, we're letting you know something, that, something just happened. We just, we just secured a victory here. Uh, this week, uh, Sarah and I were, were talking about this part of the story, and, and she brought up the point of, you know, what, what if Jesus was tucked away in, in a manger, in a, in a really humble situation, in an in a, in a, in a, in a animal trough, uh, because that was the best place to hide a secret weapon from the dragon? What if, what if that's the best place? Because Herod's not going to look for a secret weapon in an animal food trough. He's, he's going to look in a house. He's going to look among people of influence or power because he's a person of influence and power. Um, nowadays, if the story was taking place, maybe Jesus would be hidden safely under a freeway overpass in, in a homeless encampment because no self-important person is going to think to look there among society's 
outcasts among society's rejects, which is who shepherds were and what it was to be in, in a manger. You, nobody, nobody's going to look there if, if you're important and if you're supposed to be an important person. Shepherds were the ancient version of our societal rejects and outcasts, and the angels go to them. I love that part of the story. It says, hey, shepherds, here's where to find your shepherd king. And this cosmic war is why every year I, uh, I put a red dragon in our nativity scene. Um, I, uh, th- I, I inherited this, uh, this nativity scene uh, by uh, becoming married to Sarah. She brought this into our home. Some of us grew up with, uh, with a nativity scene in our home. It's a great way to tell the story to kids because they're, they're visual, maybe before they're verbal or before they can put everything together, and you can talk about all the characters. I also like that Mary and Joseph are, are like kind of brown and olive skin, because uh, this might be a surprise to you, but Jesus was not um, Italian or Swedish. He was from the Middle East. So I like that their skin's even the right color. I'm like, thank you. But, but I put every year I put um, a red dragon in our nativity scene, and I, 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 want, I want our boys to know that um, this is what's going on in the story. I don't want my boys to think that the Christmas story, that's right, Johnny, I don't want my boys to think that cr- the Christmas story is tame or that it's cute or that it's sentimental or that it's safe. Um, Disney Plus gave me The Mandalorian, and I, I thank them for that. It's a great show. It's a lot of fun. But Disney Plus is not going to do a good job telling my kids the Christmas story. Disney Plus and the Hallmark Channel and anything else, Christmas is going to be about hot chocolate and snow and, and, and nice feelings in your heart. The Christmas story is about light breaking into darkness. And as John fills us in on the cosmic backstory of, of Christmas, this helps us understand the power at work behind the dark and fallen Um, world powers and leaders and systems that we see all around us, where we see darkness, we see brokenness, where it seems like evil gets the upper hand or gets away with things. Powers that, like King Herod, use violence to get their way, use oppression to get their way, use lies, work through racism, they are exploitive, and are just flat-out evil. When you see that at work in the world, we're supposed to understand this this is what's at work behind the scenes. Jesus' followers are meant to see that these broken people and broken systems are smaller dragons. Smaller dragons, but behind the scenes pulling the the strings of these smaller puppet dragons, there is the evil behind the evil, the great red dragon. And this is the invisible backstory of the Christmas story, according to John. This Christmas story, it's about conflict, not about carols. This is about wars, not about worship. This, this story is PG-13, if not R-rated, rendering the story too intense uh, for, for little children uh, in, in, lots of, in lots of ways, where you're like, that part we'll probably have to read when you're a little older to be able to handle that part. There's, there's no sentimental, ooey-gooey feelings here behind this Christmas story. There's no cozy fireplace. There's a fire-breathing dragon. There's, there's no overweight, cookie-eating Santa dressed in red. There is a red dragon who's ready to devour the baby Jesus. Can, can you imagine um, like Hallmark printing Christmas cards with a red dragon in the background? Like, I would love to see that. I think that would be, uh, if, if that one came up on the shelf, I'd be like, yes, thank you. I, I, think, I think the idea would get shut down long before it went to print. Um, I think the executives at Hallmark would say, you know, somebody else already lays claim to the color red about this time of year, so let's not, let's not confuse the public. But um, I think it would be fun. 
Eugene Peterson, he says this, he says, it's St. John's spirit and appointed task to supplement the work of St. Matthew and St. Luke so that the nativity can't be sentimentalized into coziness and not domesticated into worldliness. This is not the nativity story that we grew up with, but it's the nativity story all the same. Jesus's birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Okay, so that was when the dragon tried to kill the child, but now why? Why should the birth of Jesus excite evil? And that's because evil knows what the birth means for the fate of evil. The dragon is a better student of the scriptures and of the gospel than many Christians are. Because the dragon knows the gospel, we hear that the dragon is full of rage. Why are things still so bad in the world right now? Because the, des- the, 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 the dragon is on a desperate rampage. He is in his death throes. This is a death rattle. He knows that he, his time is short, and so he's unleashing what remains still of the power of evil. And so as Jesus followers, we have to help each other remember some things, especially this time of year, but also later in the year when we're not thinking about Christmas. What, we, what do we need to remember when we're facing discouragement, when we're like, I don't even know why I try. I don't even know why I put forth, forth the effort. I don't know why I put my faith in this thing. I don't know why I helped this person. We need to remind each other that we're still in the middle of a war. And for another thing, we have to remember that the dragon still rages. The darkness and the evil that's at work in our world and the suffering of the church that we read about in the world, this is not a sign of Satan's victory. We, we hear in the scriptures, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. This is not a sign of the dragon's victory. This is a sign that he realizes his defeat. He doesn't want the child of Bethlehem to become the shepherd king who rules with a rod of iron because he would be the king that we're longing for. He would be the king that we need. He would be the king that's bringing justice and all the things that we're longing for in the world. But if the dragon can't kill the child, then he comes after what's most precious to the child, most precious to the lamb, his followers, his kids. So he wants us to forget the war. If we forget the war and we forget this this backstory of what's going on, that keeps baby Jesus, baby Jesus. That keeps him tame and And if we keep Jesus in the manger, then you and I are no threat to the dragon and his work in the world. So, that might have been weird. That might have been a lot of new. I don't know. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Um, How can this telling of the Christmas story with this backstory, how could this help you this time of year or even later in the year to resist um, discouragement where you feel like, "Why, why should I bother? How could this understanding of what's going on help you um, to not be ineffective in the world? What do you think about that? Let's, let's, let's get together, maybe like a group of three, and let's talk about this. How can this story help us? Go for it. Um, it's also important to know that if you've ever, if you've ever felt hassled by the dragon, um, it's nothing personal, and, um, and you're actually... You, and I say you, I mean me too. We're, we're actually not as big of a deal as we think we are. Like when we're, when we're being hassled, we, we might inflate our sense of importance and just be like, oh man, you know, really getting hassled here or whatever. No, it, you're not the dragon's primary target. 
Jesus is the dragon's primary target. And so if you want to wound Jesus, but he's out of, out of your reach, you, you go after his kids. You want to go after me, you go, you go after my son. I love him, and, and nothing would hurt me more. And um, that's, what we, that's what, what we, re we hear about in Revelation 12. And I'll hand him over now. <laughs> Good illustration. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. So um, that's, what we, that's what we read about in Revelation 12. Um, if you're, hopefully you're still there. Um, in verse 13, we read, he goes after the woman who we come to learn, she's this picture of the people of God. Um, in, in verse 17, uh, we, we read, the, the people of God, the, dra the, the woman's offspring that the dragon goes after, these are the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is a picture of the dragon going after God's people. This is a picture of, of the enemy saying, I can't get to Jesus, so I'm going to go after what's most dear to Jesus, his kids. And in Revelation 12, we, we learn that the dragon in his rage goes after God's people in three different ways. First of all, John calls the dragon the accuser of the brothers and sisters. That's what the Hebrew word um, the Satan means, uh, the accuser. And I say the Satan, it's actually, Satan's not his name, it's a, it's a title, like uh, the president or the principal or the manager. Uh, he is, he is the, the Satan, he is the accuser. So day and night, says John, the accuser is going to drag up things from our past. He's going bring it, to bring it fresh to memory and just put it right before us and even throw this before God's feet day and night in this way. I'm sure, I'm sure all of us know what it's like to be hassled by the dragon in this way. It, it, it's like a, a constant nagging guilt or whenever you're starting to experience maybe some forward momentum in your life with Jesus, that's right when, hey, well, hey, remember this though? Remember that thing you did? Remember that thing you said? Remember that thing you should have done but didn't do? Remember that thing you should have said but didn't do? Yeah, you're, you're, yeah don't, don't, don't think too highly of yourself, okay? I know you're experiencing some victory, but we all know, we all know about this. Let's not forget about this. The, the Greek word diabolos, which we translate devil, it means the slanderer. The dragon hassles us by slandering us before God and before other people saying that we are not worthy of God's love and to be a part of what God's doing because of our sin. John's telling us that one of the ways that the dragon wrecks so much havoc in the world is by going around accusing people and slandering people. And so when you and I get caught up in accusation and slander, if it's at work, if it's in our family relationships, where it just, it just feels good to just spend a little time just cutting this person down, to just question their reputation a little bit, to go, yeah, remember when they said that? Man, what was, what was going on there? It, it might feel good, and there's even situations where you might feel justified. In light of all they've done, in light of all they've said, I'm sorry, this thing that I'm doing is so small, but we're playing into the dragon's hands when we do that. The second thing is that John says that the dragon is a deceiver. He deceives the whole world, is what we read. Jesus, in John 8, calls him the father of lies. He says that lies are his native language. He's speaking his native tongue when he lies. And, and nowadays, I'm sure you feel, especially in light of recent events, uh, just in, in these last few months, it, 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 it's harder than ever to know, can I, like my leaders, uh, people in my life who I've, I've voted into power, who, who can I really like take at their word these days? Is it all just fake news? Can I, can I trust people? 
is, is there another cover-up that hasn't been exposed yet? Can I really trust this person? Am I going to find out at some point the other shoe's going to drop and there's some scandal in their, in their past? Like, who can I really trust? John's telling us that things are as bad as they are because there is a power of deception at work in the world. And a lie feels like an, a really effective way to get what we want just a little quicker or without people questioning us. Uh, it can feel a little more effective. It can feel a little more, more efficient. But I think we all know that to maintain a lie, you have to pile on more and more lies around it to support it and to build it up. And when, when, when you and I, when we lie to another human being, what's going on, why this is so destructive is because fundamentally we don't believe that this person deserves the truth. That they couldn't handle it or we don't like what they would do with it if they had the whole thing. And, and it's, it, it breaks them down. It, it, it makes them less and less human in our eyes. And we become less and less human as we lie. When we, when we trust in the power of lies and we twist the truth, we're playing into the dragon's hands. And uh, this, this, this goes to work in my life in all kinds of ways. It could be something as you know, seemingly small as being at Safeway and you, you know, there's all the different... Um, uh, I could I could things and things like that that you can bag for yourself and then you write the PLU number on there and I could I could change one number and get a different price for what I'm buying, but then probably a more everyday example is there's there's a version of myself that I want to maintain before Sarah and before you guys, and so my version of lying is only putting up the version of myself that I want other people to see, and 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 I met you you will, Sarah will see, other people will see uh, something come out of me that is not good whenever I feel like that image is being attacked in any way, if that's being questioned in any way. Because I, I, I only want to appear this way before other people. So we don't, we don't talk about that other stuff. We don't focus on those other things. It looks different for each of us, but that's us playing into the dragon's hands. And, and lastly, John says that the dragon seeks to kill. And this is why he's red, the color of blood. The dragon intimidates us with the threat of death. The, the writer of Hebrews says that the evil one keeps people under his thumb with the fear of death. The dragon speaks up when you and I are facing a crisis of conscience, where we're at a crossroads and the dragon whispers, hey, if you obey Jesus in this situation, you're going to lose your job or you're going to lose respect in this person's eyes, or you're going to lose the upper hand in this situation. If, if you obey Jesus in this moment, and it's, it's a small moment. Why are we worried, so worried about this? But if you, if you do, if you go down this road, it's over for you. This thing's going to unravel. You're going to lose this thing. Ultimately, it's a, it's a fear of loss that is, gets blown up to, 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 a, to a huge degree where really it's, it's a fear of death. If, if I go this way, then, then this thing that I want, this thing that I'm holding on to, I'm going to lose it. It's going to die. It's, it's, it's done. It's dead. It's gone. And many of us have regrets about times when we were facing a decision of whether or not to follow Jesus, and out of fear of what we were going to lose by doing what Jesus would do in that situation, we backed off from what we knew was the right thing to do. So accusations, lies, the fear of death. How are we going to withstand an enemy like this? You guys want to hear some good news about now? Me too, yeah. John says in verse 11, they overcame. They were victorious. They conquered. 
And, and we hear this word earlier in the revelation of Jesus in the seven messages to the seven churches. Seven times Jesus makes promises to those who overcome. And here in Revelation 12, we finally learn how to overcome. So there's three ways. Against the flood of accusation, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb covers our sin. From the Lamb pays the penalty of our sin. And the blood of the Lamb cleanses us from our sin. Because, you see, the dragon's right. We, we have sinned. And we're going to sin again. He's right. But he's also wrong because he's not telling the whole story. There is a Savior who has secured the victory over sin. And he won't tell you that part of the story. He'll never bring that part up. So when the enemy accuses you, either by whispering in your ear, in your conscience, in your heart, or through the speech of other people around you, we overcome by confessing our sin. Confess means to say with, to agree. We say, yeah, you're right. You're right. I sinned again. Or yeah, you're right. Back then, that story, that, that memory, mm -hmm, I remember that. But then we preach the gospel to him and to ourselves. And Romans 8, 33 to 34 is a great one, a great weapon to have in your arsenal. Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died? More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The only one who is in a position to condemn me or you doesn't condemn me or you. In Jesus, we have someone who has come for us, someone who has died for us, someone who has risen for us, someone who reigns in power for us, and someone who intercedes for us, someone who is praying for us all the time. This is our advocate. So you preach the gospel to the dragon and to yourself and to your brothers and sisters whenever you feel like they're being hassled in this sort of way. That's the first thing. The second thing is against the flood of deceit, we're going to overcome by knowing the truth and by speaking the truth and living the truth. The only counter to deceit is words of truth, particularly the truth about Jesus. We overcome by not letting even the slightest untruth gain a foothold in our lives. This means that the battle is not just fought on big issues like abortion or gun violence or racism. The battle is fought on little, everyday, ordinary issues like when we're tempted to twist the story ever so slightly. Like not coming clean when somebody asks us, hey, what, what happened? Or where were you? Or what did you do? Jesus says to us all the time, you'll know the truth. And what will the truth do? It will set you free. We overcome, we experience freedom by being ruthless about the truth. And lastly, against the threat of death, we overcome by declaring the gospel of life to the dragon, robbed and to ourselves. The good news is that the resurrection of Jesus has robbed death of its finality. The dragon would want you to think that you go down this road, you lose, this is where it's going, it's all going to spiral out of control, it's dead, it's gone. The resurrection says, no, there's another, the, the story's not over yet. Verse 11 says they didn't love their lives even to death. And why not? Because God's people knew that death doesn't get the last word. It only gets the next to last word. The last word belongs to the resurrected Jesus. 
So dragon, you can threaten me all you want. I've thrown in my lot with the resurrected one. And so ultimately, I can't lose. Resurrection life steals the dragon's thunder. So how do we withstand accusation and lies and death threats? Say it with me. We are cleansed by Jesus's blood. We hold on to Jesus's truth and we trust in Jesus's resurrection. And Martin Luther put it so well in uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that one little word is Jesus. Merry Christmas. So to wrap up our time together, um, let's give each other a final benediction. Let's give a good word to each other. And it would be along these lines. First of all, tell them Merry Christmas. But then talk about what was the most important thing that Jesus revealed to, to you today. Okay? And, uh, and we'll be done uh, after we've uh, ta talked with each other about this. But love you guys. Merry Christmas. Let's chat about this for a little bit.